Hi, I'm Steve Shepard, and I'm a storyteller. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project, the home of stories worth telling. So far, there are more than 200 episodes in this series. Each is different, but two things tie them together. First, each one is about a topic that deserves your attention and curiosity. Second, they're free for the taking, meaning I hope you'll listen to the stories and then tell them to other people. Why? Because good stories are the birthplace of curiosity, and curiosity leads to discovery, which in turn leads to insight, which ultimately leads to understanding. And understanding is what creates the fabric of community, which is always built on a foundation of good storytelling. So as I said, welcome. I'm glad you dropped by. And with that, I'd like to tell you a story. Before you start this episode, you might want to have an atlas in front of you, or at least have access to some kind of a map application. You'll understand why in a minute. I'm going to channel my inner geek here for just a minute. I love maps. I freely admit that I have spent hours poring over maps of the world for no particular reason, just looking for funny names, interesting geographic details, you know, things that catch my attention. Canada especially intrigues me because it's such a modern, robust, exciting country, yet more than 85% of the country's population lives within 100 miles of the border with the U.S. So when you head north on a map of Canada, you soon find yourself in places for which the term trackless waste was kind of invented. It's a huge country, much of it still blissfully human-free, but there are treasures to be found there. For example, did you know that 200 miles north of the little town of Rimouski in Quebec, there is a perfectly round lake called Lake Manicouagan that is 60 miles across? But that's not what makes it special. What makes it special is that it is what's called an annular lake because it's what remains of an ancient meteor strike. Ancient, like 215 million years ago. So as the name annular implies, it's a ring lake. And as more than one source says, it's the seventh largest freshwater lake by volume in the world. Who knew? Go take a look. I'll wait. Find the Gaspé Peninsula and look just above it, just to the north. Anyway, what I love about maps of Canada is that the country has all kinds of roads, big roads, that head north from the big population centers toward places like James Bay and Hudson Bay and Nunavut and the Northwest Territories. And those roads, they wander northward, crossing the Great Canadian Shield, and then abruptly, they just end. That's where I want to go. I want to go to the place where the road ends, kind of like Shell Silverstein's Where the Sidewalk Ends. My point is, I love maps, all maps. Not too long ago, I read a book called Maphead by Ken Jennings, the guy who was the greatest living champion on Jeopardy for a very long time. Great book, by the way. Anyway, not too long ago, I was looking at a map of the U.S., and I noticed something kind of interesting. There's a handful of states that all have something in common. They all have little parts of themselves that stick out in weird ways, like little extensions that just shouldn't be there. Map makers call them peninsulas and panhandles and boot heels, I think they look more like appendices, especially in the case of West Virginia and my own state, Vermont. Again, go take a look. I'll wait. Now, the most obvious of these states are Alabama, Maryland, Michigan, Missouri, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and as I just said, Vermont and West Virginia. So in this program, 
I'm going to share with you the reason that these states are shaped the way they are and why nobody bothered to perform appendectomies to make them look a little bit more normal. So let's start with Alabama. Alabama's shape was created beginning in March of 1663 when King Charles II of England created the Carolina colony by cutting off a chunk of the larger colony of Virginia and making its southern border the 31st parallel, which today is Alabama's border with Florida. He then went on to chop the Carolina colony into a couple of pieces, one of which became the state of Georgia, from which Alabama was carved. In 1804, thanks to the Louisiana Purchase the year before, Alabama got access to the Gulf of Mexico via the boot heel that extends down between the western end of Florida's panhandle and the eastern border of Mississippi. Have a look. It's that little peninsula that sticks down to the Gulf. Then there's Maryland. Now, Maryland has one of the weirdest shapes of any state. Even though it's a small state, as states go, it's 352 miles long, reaching from Ocean City on the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Appalachian Mountains. But it's the state's panhandle that caught my attention. Sabina and I drove down south a couple of times in 2022, always taking Interstate 81 from Binghamton, New York, southward. And each time, we were just astonished how quickly we went from Pennsylvania to Maryland to West Virginia, as in less than five minutes. There are parts of that weird east-west panhandle that are one mile wide, separating Pennsylvania from West Virginia. Why? Well, there are actually two answers to that question. The first is the Mason-Dixon line, which was drawn by Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon, English surveyors who established the 233-mile boundary between Maryland and Pennsylvania. But then West Virginia's northern border with Maryland was established to be the northernmost point on the Potomac River. So between the Mason-Dixon line and the Potomac River, which of course doesn't flow in a straight line, we find Maryland's weird, skinny little panhandle. By the way, there's one other thing about Maryland that's kind of interesting. If you look at the state's eastern side, you find Chesapeake Bay, that big gaping mouth, both sides of which belong to Maryland. Both sides, that is, except for the eastern side of the eastern peninsula, which is Delaware. Why isn't that part of Maryland? Well, because at the time of the royal charter that created Maryland, that area was Protestant Dutch. When the English finally managed to kick the Dutch out of the area in 1674, there was a land scramble, during which Pennsylvania claimed the land now known as Delaware so that they could have access to the Atlantic Ocean. But the original charter placed that land within Maryland's domain, except that it didn't. In 1685, the King's Committee for Trade and Plantations ruled that Delaware was a separate jurisdiction because Maryland's charter only included land that was uncultivated by Christians. The wording of the charter was, in a country hitherto uncultivated in the parts of America and partly occupied by savages, having no knowledge of the divine being. Delaware was settled by Dutch Christians, which made it off-limits to Maryland. I doubt that the so-called savages were given a choice or a voice. And now we move on to Michigan. Michigan, of course, looks like a big catcher's mitt, which makes it interesting, but that's not what caught my attention. What got me wondering was the state's upper peninsula, which if you look at a map, should absolutely be part of Wisconsin, not Michigan. But here's what happened. In 
Ever since it was established as part of what the federal government called Indian Territory, the state got into territory squabbles with its neighbors, Wisconsin, Ohio, Minnesota, even Canada. One of the biggest of these was a dispute with Ohio over a piece of land called the Toledo Strip. The Toledo Strip was a very thin sliver of land that ran from northern Indiana in the west to the mouth of the Maumee River in the east where it dumped into Lake Erie. If you look at a map, you'll see that this strip of land is roughly the border between Ohio and Michigan, both of which claimed it so that they could have access to Lake Erie for shipping. This led to what came to be known as the Toledo War, or the Michigan-Ohio War between 1835 and 1836. It was pretty much bloodless as wars go, and ultimately Michigan lost to Ohio. But to make things fair, Michigan was given the land at the top of Wisconsin that we now know as the Upper Peninsula. Not sure how fair that was to Wisconsin, but whatever. Next on the list, Missouri. Missouri joined the United States as part of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. It has the distinction of touching more states than any other except for Tennessee. Both share borders with eight other states. Missouri's border is the result of treaties, agreements, a couple of wars, and one Supreme Court ruling. Missouri's eastern border is the Mississippi River. The state's western border was determined to be Fort Osage on the Missouri River as part of a territory agreement with local Native Americans. The northern boundary was the result of a dispute with the Iowa Territory, and it took a Supreme Court decision to resolve it. Now, Missouri's southern border is kind of interesting because it has that boot heel on the southeast corner. It wasn't there originally, but thanks to fierce lobbying by a guy named John Hardiman Walker, a businessman who wanted a piece of the border shifted farther south for personal and commercial reasons, things changed. Walker, it turns out, was a pretty significant landowner and a cattle rancher. And when the charter of the state created its boundaries, a big chunk of his land would have become part of Arkansas. So Walker started an intense lobbying effort in Missouri and in Washington to include the boot heel within the boundaries of Missouri. It worked, and in 1821, when Missouri joined the Union, it included Walker's boot heel, which added about 900 square miles to the state. Now we move on to New Mexico. New Mexico is pretty much square, except for that little piece, another boot heel, that sticks down on its western border with Arizona and its southern border with Mexico. The southern border was created by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, which ended the Mexican-American War. As part of its effort to organize the land that Mexico ceded to the United States, Congress passed the Compromise of 1850, which established sort of a straight line at 37 degrees latitude north as the territory's northern border and its eastern border with Texas. The boot heel was added to New Mexico through the Gadsden Purchase in June of 1854, when the U.S. purchased an additional 30,000 square miles of land from Mexico. And then there's Pennsylvania, which was one of the 13 original colonies. Another shoebox kind of a state, the Delaware River forms the border with New York and New Jersey, while the establishment of the Mason-Dixon Line separated Pennsylvania from Maryland, as we heard earlier. But if you look up in the northwest corner of the state, near the town of Erie, you'll find a little peninsula that sticks up, giving the state access to Lake Erie. That little triangle-shaped peninsula is called the Erie Triangle. It's a 300-square-mile piece of land 
that was acquired by the U.S. government for 75 cents an acre to resolve a dispute between New York, Pennsylvania, and, get this, Massachusetts and Connecticut. If you look at a map, you'll see that those last two are nowhere near that little piece of land. But because they were created by what were called Sea to Shining Sea land grants, those two states felt that they had the right to own that little geographical skin tag that would give them access to Lake Erie. Eventually, after concluding that Pennsylvania was the only state involved that was completely landlocked, the feds handed the little piece of land over to them so that they'd have access to a shipping port. I love this stuff. Okay, my home state, Vermont. If you look at the western edge of the state, down by Whitehall, across Lake Champlain from Lake George, you'll see this weird little appendix-looking thing that sticks out into New York. It's kind of weird. Well, for a long time, Vermont sat in the middle of a tug-of-war between New York and New Hampshire, both of which wanted to claim the territory as its own. Originally, Vermont was part of New York, but when the King of England ruled that the Vermont territory belonged to New York, Vermont declared itself a standalone, independent republic in 1777. The leader of the republic was none other than Ethan Allen. At one point, Vermont tried to join Quebec, but Quebec politely declined. Eventually, Vermont paid New York to settle a variety of land claims, and it was admitted to the Union as a state in 1791. Now, Vermont's border with New Hampshire today is the Connecticut River, while its northern border with Quebec, a half hour north of my home, is more or less a straight east-west line. I love the fact that when you drive from my house, just a few miles from the border, you pass a big road sign on the side of the road that says you're crossing the 45th parallel, meaning that we're halfway to the North Pole. That's a little bit frightening. Anyway, the same is true with Massachusetts. The western border with New York is more or less the shores of Lake Champlain, although there is that one very curious thing, that little peninsula that pokes into New York. So I reached out to Marjorie Strong, who was a librarian at the Vermont Historical Society, and she filled me in. That weird little appendix actually predates the Western Union land grab by Vermont in 1781. In 1777, Vermont claimed Lake Champlain as the eastern boundary line, so when the state chartered the town of Fair Haven in 1779, you'll see the town if you look closely at the map, it's just to the east of Whitehall, that was the western boundary of the town. The 1779 charter specifies the Pulteney River at the low water mark as the southern border. Now, many of the original proprietors of Fairhaven were, as Marjorie pointed out, Vermont political heavyweights, such as members of the Allen family, including Ira Allen and Thomas Chittenden, who went on to become the state's first governor. They paid a lot of money for the land, 6,930 pounds, which at the time was a fortune, roughly the equivalent of $1.2 million today. Fairhaven was split in two in 1792, with the appendix becoming part of West Haven. So the appendix has been part of Vermont's boundaries since at least 1779. Finally, we have West Virginia. The state is roughly circular. Okay, it's more of an oval, but it's got these two little arms that stick out, one to the north in a narrow little splinter between Ohio and Pennsylvania, and a bigger peninsula that pokes out to the northeast, more or less dividing Maryland from Virginia. Well, here's what happened. In 1863, the western counties of Virginia split to become West Virginia. The northern panhandle, that skinny little splinter, 
was formed by the Ohio River along West Virginia's western border. The southern section of the eastern panhandle was created when West Virginia separated from Virginia. So there you have it, a weird little geography lesson that I hope you found interesting. There are so many stories to be told and so much to learn, and all it takes is a little bit of deliberate curiosity. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.